Welcome to Pouring Over Pages, a podcast of words and wine. I'm Alexa. And I'm Maritza. And we're back to pop, <laughs> pop bottles and read novels with you again for our latest episode. More so read novels because we have been popping <laughs> bottles over the past couple of weeks and we've just, we have not had time to sit down and discuss this book that we read at a least a month ago. ago. At least. At least a month it's ago. It's been a minute. It's been a tough couple of weeks. We've both been extraordinarily busy with everything at work and opening a new show at Pam. And now we can finally rest. And this is part of our rest. I mean, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. So I, I'm excited. I'm excited to dive into it. Yes, same. And and let me quickly plug the show that Maritza helped organize at Pam. Um, Marisol and Warhol Take New York, an amazing show at the museum that she helped organize down here in this version. And it is wonderful and fabulous and and just a great great slice into the pop art world. It's fantastic. And for anyone who's who's interested, I mean, this is a show that really does cover um you know, a, a really extraordinary friendship between two people who inspired and collaborated for, for many years. So highly recommend to come by Pam and learn a little bit more about Marisol because she's the one that people mm-hmm. might not know as much about. So that's where we've been for the past couple of weeks. Yeah. We've been diving into that material and, and, and opening the show and then celebrating the opening of the show. And now things will slow down a wee bit and we can get back to our, our reading, which I've missed. Yay! Yes. I feel like an imposter. I haven't been reading enough. <laughs> I know. It's like part of your fiber and you're like, what's wrong with me? So this is an exciting episode for us because, you know, in a weird way, I would say it was kind of nice for us to take a little bit of time before discussing this book because it's one of those books that I think requires quite a bit of self-reflection, quite a bit of time to sink in because just like any traumatic experience, (laughs) you need to... Let that sink in, feel your feelings, understand where they're coming from, understand what they mean. And I think this book did that. I mean, this was a really, really, really tough read. And that's not to scare anybody off. I mean, it was so worth it. Such a great read, such an interesting way of thinking about some of these issues that we'll discuss today, but definitely something that I think requires quite a, quite a bit from, from the reader. Yeah. I, I feel like this book, as I was reading it, it's like half you know, page turner, you're trying to figure out how it ends. And then half of it is just completely horrifying. And you're in awe as you're reading each sentence. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of like a punch in the gut. But again, so worthy. This is The School for Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan. This is a book that came out uh, earlier this year, just just a couple of months ago. And we wanted to touch on this topic because it's something that we haven't talked about on the podcast. And it's a somewhat dystopian novel that dives into motherhood, but more so a patriarchal society and how that society, when it doesn't respect the fundamental role of women as individuals, how that turns into what this book describes, which is basically women as potted plants uh, to have, you know, bear children and raise them in a certain way with the state essentially dictating how you do that and defining the family unit as something that is very, very, very traditional conservative and the complete opposite of what we see in, yeah. in our everyday lives, right? So this is really a, a societal critique, I would say, and 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 it uses that particular lens of of the mother and motherhood within society 
to talk about what it would mean to live in a society where the government is dictating the way mm-hmm. that you raise your children. I mean, it's very big brothery. Very. If if you love dystopian reads, if you love Handmaid's Tale, 1984, <laughs> all, the, yep. all of the above, you you will find a place in your heart for this. It's a really good book. So yeah. don't get scared. But it is, it is harsh. Yeah, it's fantastic. This is the story of, we'll give you a very brief summary because this is a book that is worth us not giving you too mm-hmm. much information. I think we're going to really use it to talk about some of these themes and we're going to use, as, as we always do, some of the quotes in the book that allow us to have these conversations. But it's really worth you going into it a little bit blind, right? So we're mm-hmm. not going to share too, too much. But this is a story of Frida, a woman who lives in Pennsylvania and she is recently divorced yeah. and she has a young daughter. She's under the age under of two. two. Yeah, definitely right? two. Uh, her name is Harriet. And one day Frida has a really, really, really tough day. You can tell that what she is, is, is probably overwhelmed and overworked. Yeah. And she ends up leaving Harriet at home to go to work, to pick up to pick something up at work, right? Because she had a deadline and ends up leaving her for a total of a few hours Mm -hmm. at home alone. And the neighbor hears Harriet crying, calls the police, and that's how they figure out that Frida essentially abandoned her child for a few hours, is charged with abandonment and neglect, and all hell sort of breaks loose uh, from there. Yeah, yeah. It uh, it goes into an interesting turn of events from there. Um... I think that when you brought up Handmaid's Tale, that's a great comparison because what I think about when I think about that comparison between the two books is how there is this reform element when when you're reading The Handmaid's Tale, the handmaids go to a school where they are mm-hmm. taught how to act and what their role within society is. So you definitely get that in this book. The the, the one spoiler that we do have to give you because it, it it's, it's part, part of the description. Yeah, yeah. You're, it's we're not literally sh- we're the title shock you. of the book. Right. She gets sent off to a school a reform school that is going to teach her how to become a better mother. And if she is able to pass, if she's able to excel, then there's the possibility that she'll get her daughter back. But in that time, her daughter is in the custody of her ex-husband and his new girlfriend. And that in and of itself causes quite a few issues, Mm -hmm. right? So she's not really allowed to communicate with Harriet very often uh, in the one year period that she's at the school. And the book covers the the horrible day where she leaves Harriet, the one year at the reform school, and then very, very shortly after the the verdict and, yeah. and what what's decided in terms of the fate of Frida and her daughter Harriet. Yeah, it's it's a very um interesting book, a great read, and that is uh but it's a it's a tough pill to swallow. So with that, the wine we're drinking is Martinet Brew from Priorat. It's a 2019, it's a blend. Um, so we're diving into Spain this time and uh let's let's get it going. This this hard, this hard read, this hard but important read. <laughs> I'm very excited to dive into the wine today too, because it mm-hmm. just fits so perfectly with the story. Mm-hmm. But well, let's start off with one of the quotes that I think really does sort of define one of the major themes that's in the book. And on page 11, it says, she always feels like she's fucking up, but now there's evidence, right? And this idea of mothers not being good enough, right? This idea of, am I doing it right? I think it's important for us before we dive into this into any particular detail 
is to address the elephant in the room, which is that neither one of us are mothers, yeah, right? No. So we're looking at this book from the perspective of of criticism of of, of societal pressures of women in general, mm-hmm. and I think it's something to consider um, when you're thinking about. The, the mothers in, in your life, whether it's your own mother, friends who are mothers, and how you interact with them and how you appreciate the work that they do and how you can find empathy and compassion understanding in order to relate to them better, mm-hmm. you know, as you don't have to be a mother to read this book and and have it mean something to you. I think quite the opposite. I think if you're a mother, it'll trigger you in a different way. Yeah. But I think if you're not a mother, you'll you'll relate to some of the societal pressures that you feel of being a woman and the pressures that you feel to become a mother. That's a whole That's other a whole issue other too, yeah. right? Because for the life of me, I mean, I've been saying this for, since, I think probably since episode one, I have zero intention. I've never wanted to be a mother. And, and when people ask me, oh, well, when are you going to, I'm just like, Fuck off. <laughs> just straight up. That's just like, let's just start off with that. You know, you need we need to stop asking women when they're going to become mothers, why they're not mothers yet. We need to stop doing that. To yeah. me, it's a lack of respect. No, totally. And it's just reinforcing the societal stigma that it's, you're not a full woman unless right. you have a child. Like if you're not a mother, how could you understand everything and, and the world? And yeah, no, my family's been asking me when I'm going to have a kid since I got into a relationship with my husband now, who we've been together for almost 14 years. And it's like, I don't know, a few years, a few years passes, more years pass. I'm like, I don't know, whenever I want, if I want. Right. If one day I feel like it, we'll do it. If I don't, then we won't. If I don't have any more eggs, I'll adopt something or get 10 dogs. Something. <laughs> I'll adopt something. Something. <laughs> it's, so, it's so true. I mean, like this question, it's like as if people feel that they're entitled to this information and they're absolutely 100% not. And that idea that you are not a full woman unless you're married or you have children is exactly what this book Mm -hmm. is discussing because the the reform that they're learning at this school is to basically be the most selfless version, the most unrealistic selfless version that a person could possibly be. And on page 61, it says she must show that she's wrestling with her guilt. The more she suffers, the more she cries, the more they will respect her. And that's exactly the problem. Yeah. This idea of selflessness as motherhood. We discussed quite the opposite of this when we read way back when on episode one, Untamed, when Glennon Doyle is talking about how being a mother means being exactly who you are to your fullest capacity so that you give permission to your kids to then become that as well. Yeah. For them to feel like they can be both and to define motherhood for themselves whatever that may be. So I think that this book is saying the same thing without saying it. It's giving you the the really horrific metaphor of what could happen if we were to allow society to to continue to push in this really horrible, unrealistic, conservative way where patriarchy takes over and women have a specific societal role. And outside of that, you you are nothing. You are nothing. Exactly. And when it comes to that in the societal role, it's also, you know, people don't go around asking men like, how are your testicles doing? When are you going to have a kid soon? And, and expecting them to, to prepare in the same way too. Um, you know, I have a few friends that are mothers and it's almost like when you become pregnant, it's your job to prepare for it. You're the one that has to deal with, you know, prepping the home, learning all that you can, um, you know, changing your life and your career and your habits and your needs. 
Um, and your partner is pretty much just, you know, having the good parts of, of being a, a parent, being the fun dad or not worrying about the same restrictions or being asked if they're going back to work or when they're picking up the child or it's, it's just a whole set of, of different guidelines. Right. Or when they say something stupid like, oh, it's so nice that your husband is babysitting today. Yeah. Like, babysitting. It's the fuck. It's like that's, that's just his, parenting. It's, it's just baby. straight up his job. Like, <laughs> but, but language, but that's why language matters, right? Mm-hmm. We've had that conversation before is that the way that we frame these things, even if we're not outright saying it, there is that that kind of unspoken accusation, Mm -hmm. right? Or things that are being implied silently, like what you're saying when people say, oh, why haven't you had a baby? They're implying that you're not done yet. They're implying that you have more that you're supposed to provide, more that you're supposed to do, even if it goes against maybe your definition of what you want your life to be. And also, let's just kind of go back to that initial point, which is you can take as long as you want to decide that, and there's also this pressure of, of everything happening when you're really young. So fast, right? yeah. Especially for women. And men, the, the, the school, there is a men's equivalent to the school. <laughs> That's the best And that part. comparison is just, <laughs> it's just laughable because they have such an easier time. Their curriculum is like elementary while the mothers are getting their master's in motherhood, essentially. Right. And it leaves absolutely no room for a job or a career, Mm-mm. right? The way that these women are being taught to be good mothers is basically by being 100 completely, just fully invested in being mothers and and doing nothing else and dedicating their entire time and their entire life to their children. So it's just, again, it's, it's, quite, it's pretty laughable, but I love that the author, that Jessamine Chan, creates these two schools to create that dialogue because mm-hmm. it's a pretty clever way to do it. It is. <laughs> and there's also like less men, right, in the school. There's less men. They have all these young uh, women as the, the doctors and teachers. Right, of course. <laughs> While the women are all corralled and stuffed into different rooms and they have all these strict uh, punishments and guidelines. And while well, the men, the men look like they're on spring break, essentially, compared yeah. to the moms. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And And what I appreciate the most about this book, and I think it's important to dive into it, is that... Jessamine Chan is obviously criticizing society as a whole and women's place within society as a whole, but she also talks about race, I think, in a really, Mm. really interesting, in a really interesting way and in a really important way. Because some of the women who are in the school are are black, are white. I believe Frida is 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 in the minority, right? She's she's Asian American. Um, So she talks about race in a way that makes you feel like it's so palpable within the walls of the school. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting is when it comes down to trying to get her daughter back and knowing that she has to go to court, there's a moment in the book where she's told, well, just remember Frida, you know, you're, you're going to be seen as white because in Mm -hmm. comparison to a lot of the other black women who, who pass through these doors and are trying to get their kids back, you know, you're going to really fall more into the white category. You're not going to be seen as a person of color. And that in and of itself is a really, really interesting conversation because I think that's something we've been talking about actually. Yeah, recently, actually. (laughs) Separately outside of this episode. But there's a really interesting character. Her name is Lucretia. And she's one of the black women who goes to the school. And she's focused on, I would say, quite a bit. She becomes a really important character. And there's this incident where one of the women tries to run away Mm -hmm. at the school and 
kind of causes a scene. And Lucretia says that only a white lady would quit on the second day. Uh, <laughs> if a black mother tried a stunt like this, they'd throw her ass in jail, maybe have her get shot on the way there and make it look like she killed herself. Several black mothers at the next table over overhear Lucretia and laugh knowingly. And it's absolutely no, true. it's absolutely true. It's the double standard in our society. First, first off, you already have a mark against you because you're a woman in this patriarchal society. And then if you're black, Hispanic, any minority, then it's even worse. It's another kind of check towards you. So that um, comparison that they made there was very interesting. Like even within the school, there's even more subdivisions and, and dividers between the mothers and their journeys. And they do it from like the very beginning yeah. when they're all getting off the bus. You start to see like the black women all sitting in one side of the of the entrance of the school and some of the white women are kind of over there and they start to self-segregate. Mm -hmm. And it isn't until they're actually in their classes where they're divided up and, and sort of diversified, so yeah. to speak, that they start to sit in that in, in that groups. way, in those groups, because they start to bond over the fact that they are suffering every day um, in these horrible, horrible courses. And and these courses are, I mean, talk about dystopian. I mean, they, they, they are forced to partner up with robot children. <laughs> it's, it's the freakiest thing. <laughs> it's so, so, so bizarre. But it just, yeah, it's just so like... 1984 meets Handmaid's Tale meets Brave New World, but really kind of without the drugs. It's just, it's just so, so, so bizarre. It requires you to be a little bit like open-minded when you're reading that kind of part because yeah. at first it's really shocking and then you sort of get used to it. You're like, what's this sci-fi shit? You're yeah, like, <laughs> it's so bizarre, but these kids, they're so real and they have personalities that shift and change based on the mother's um, behavior. Emotions, yeah, behavior. Yeah, they could read um, with their software. They could read your emotions. So they know exactly how you're feeling at the moment, which the teachers use as a way to, to see if you're actually becoming a good mother or not. Right. And there's so much commentary on on culture too, right? So mm -hmm. we, we we thought about race. We thought about gender, obviously, right? That's the, that's the main sort of premise. But there's also this idea of different cultures, right? And there is this teacher there, Miss Corey, who's presumably from somewhere in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. so that's sort of how she's described. And she says, maybe that worked in the cultures you and I grew up in, but this is America. She says, an American mother should inspire feelings of hope, not regret. <laughs> kind of ironic. Yeah. <laughs> kind of ironic kind of. to say the least. <laughs> but it, it just also, I love that Jessamine Chan touches on that because Motherhood is also such a cultural thing. Depending on where you're from is, is 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 what your definition of motherhood came from, right? And I think we can look at it from the perspective of like Latin American parents or yeah. immigrant parents who feel like their one job is to provide a, a, a blank canvas or a space for you to become whatever it is that you want to be yeah. because they might not have had those same opportunities, so culture plays a big role in this book. And that's one of the elements that I like the most and that I related to the most because I can feel that and experience and speak to that in my upbringing and in my everyday life. Yeah, same. I believe Frida was Chinese. I believe her mother yeah. was Chinese and, and her mother was always working constantly, did not by any means reach this definition of motherhood because her definition was being a good mother was providing for her family. So constantly working, um, never really there in, in Frida's life. But in her eyes, you know, she was doing the best she could as an immigrant to make sure her daughter had everything she could possibly want. 
Right. And it's also interesting, too, that Frida doesn't uh, – she doesn't speak Chinese. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. That element is interesting because we've, we've talked about this, how – when you're when you're an immigrant and you have children here, some, one of the ways that you assimilate is is through the English language, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, um, but also just generally whiteness, right? We talked mm-hmm. about that quite a bit yeah. um, back when we read Party of Two. Party of Two, yeah. Um, you know, the idea of assimilation in America has a lot more to do with performative whiteness than anything else. So the fact that Frida was taught to prioritize English, mm-hmm. to not learn the language of her parents. That's one way to separate yourself from your past. And we see that here. Oh, always. There's so many kids of our same age that are that are that grow up in Miami and they never learn Spanish because their parents would prefer that they don't have access yeah. to that language as a, as a form of saying, no, I'm American. Yeah. I can't even speak Spanish. Don't even look at me and, and think of me as I'm white as, as can be. Yeah, white don't. as can be, which is so, I mean, America. I could, I could sit here and talk about that life. for four hours because it drives me up the fucking wall when I hear that kind of bullshit. But it's interesting that Jessamine Chen peppered in that little, mm-hmm. that little uh, anecdote about Frida not speaking Chinese because that's what this book is. There's so yeah. many little things like that, that depending on where you grew up or or what your definition of motherhood is or your culture, whatever it may be, you find those little things and you can run with them in a conversation, right? Definitely. It's just so easy. Yeah, and I think it's interesting when you spoke about Glennon and then I'm also thinking about um, I Love You, But I've Chosen Darkness, yes. that author. Both of these are Claire white. Bay Watkins. Claire Bay Watkins. Both of these are white women who are redefining their terms of motherhood. I mean, for Christ's sake, the fucking Claire Bay Watkins abandons her fucking baby to go on some fucking drug-induced... Some crazy, some crazy past <laughs> story. I mean, just bender in the fucking desert but she has her husband at home taking care of everything and mm-hmm. then we have glennon who you know wants for herself had her husband support system and then you know later on abby helping with everything and now in this instance we have frida who is a minority who doesn't have her husband here and is dealing with all this bullshit and gets sent to this mother school so i feel like there's also some entitlement in the yeah. way that the other two authors are white and they're able to just frame things. Right. Exactly. There's a certain freedom that comes yeah. with with that whiteness. And Frida, in many ways, I think is is alone. Because yeah. even though her ex-husband and his new girlfriend are taking care of Harriet, and that's one burden that they can bear, emotionally, I would argue that she's alone and detached. Yes. Because she doesn't have anyone. And, and the counselors that they have at the school are really there to indoctrinate her. Mm -hmm. They're really not there to provide any sort of support. So what's interesting about Frida is that she is, she's a, she's a protagonist who to me is an absolute superhero, regardless of how things go and how she feels and where she fails. Cause she fails a lot. Yeah. She fails a lot and you see her struggle a lot. And I think that that's what makes the book realistic. She's not, she's not the heroine that, that, makes it through every obstacle and no. and just comes out with, you know, a couple scars in the end. Like this is a woman who is failing and learning and trying to find her way through an impossible situation. And that's what makes her, I think, so, I wouldn't say likable, 
it's maybe like relatable, endearing, endearing. endearing. You yeah. feel for her, and you you yeah. understand because we all go through yeah. things, and we're not all perfect all the time. There's and a, you, and you root for her. Yeah, exactly. You Even want she, her to do well. She didn't she frustrate you though? She yeah, she, she pissed was me so off. So frustrating. A lot. Yeah, I'm like, come on, just just do this. She <laughs> really she really frustrated me a lot because I felt that she could have acted a little bit more. Like when you're in that yeah. situation, I think you need to be faking it. You need to fake it till you make it. And she was trying to be real you to can't. her detriment. Right? Yeah, exactly. In that instance, it's it's a show. You're on right. display and it's a show. And especially because in her mind, she's like, I'm doing this for Harriet. I'm going to get her back. Like in her mind, she was so certain. Right. But then her actions didn't portray that. At all. So I'm like, did you really want to get, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's And you know, and that's that's the part that I'm really glad that you brought up because there were moments for me in the book that made me think that she might not have wanted this at all. Yeah. I call me crazy and maybe I'm one of the few people who believe this cuz yes, she went through this school, she went through this horrible process, she did everything she could to get her kid back. But there's this like little part of me that thinks that she never wanted a kid at all. Yeah. Same. Like I really 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 believe that. And I think that this book can also function as as a warning, if you want to live your life a certain way, and I'm not speaking about motherhood specifically, but if you want to live your life in a certain way and you choose not to because you choose the path of quote unquote least resistance mm-hmm. or the path that society pushes you towards, then this is what happens. Yeah, You end up in a situation where you're fighting for things that you never wanted or you're fighting for things that that energy could have gone elsewhere. So... I, I don't know. I could I could be wrong. I don't know what the author's intention was, but I think it's perfect perfectly reasonable for someone to read this book and believe that she never wanted to be a mother in the first place. Yeah, especially in those moments when she goes back into her past and talks about how she was before she met Gus and what she would do. I'll leave that guy for you to read. Um, yeah. But it's just very contra what her life turns out being. Totally. And how she, you know, has some love interests in the book and how she behaves with them. It's just, it's just such a stark difference. I feel like when Harriet's in her care, that's when she puts on the show of like, right. now I'm the mom, let's do this. And <laughs> it was just that one really bad day where she couldn't act anymore and it all shit hit the fan. Right. I think that... I think that's what did it for me. Yeah. I think that's the word, acting. I think that that's, that was her breaking point mm-hmm. because you can't fake it for that long. No. And then and then int- I, I love that you brought up the Claire Watkins book because now I'm thinking about that too, that she also seems to me like someone who Pretty, never wanted no, to be a mother. at all. And then it just sort of happened and then she has to abandon it because it was never part of her plan and it was never part of the life that she wanted to live. So, you know, these 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 stories for me are sort of like, Hey guys, again, not not mother specific, but you need to live the life that you want. Yeah. You need to live the life that you can define for yourself and that you can be proud of. Because if you do things just because you think you're supposed to do them, this is what happens. This is what happens. You become a, a complete train wreck. Right. And end up in a situation right. that you never wanted to be in. And and you end up lonely. Yeah. And loneliness was a big theme in this book. Not mm-hmm. only because she's you know, a single mother raising Harriet and feels very frustrated in in her raising of Harriet, but also in the school itself. She doesn't feel particularly close to anybody. She she also forces herself not to get close to some of the other mothers, provides some assistance, but 
but really doesn't want to make friends. No. And she's like a background character to all the yeah. other mothers almost. She's, she's trying just to just on the periphery there yeah. and not and not trying to create any any real connections which I can understand as a sort of act of self-preservation in the midst of so much chaos and fear. But loneliness is talked about a lot in the book and and one of the ways that it's defined is as a form of narcissism, right? And that to me is just such a such a criticism of how we how we how we look at women in society now especially especially mothers right because it says that a mother who's in harmony with her child who understands her place in her child's life and her role in society is never lonely through caring for her child all her needs are fulfilled that's on page 200 <laughs> talk about bullshit that's right? so horrible isn't that absolutely <laughs> fucking crazy it's insane i'm also very much of the the thought of the child should fit into your life you shouldn't fit into the child's life because then you have shit like this happening and the loneliness and the you know going off your rocker there and having a mental breakdown because you, you cannot be yourself. And that's a theme that is also talked about because I think that there's a moment when, when Gust and, and Frida were talking about how they were going to parent their, their, their daughter, what they were going to do, what kind of ethos they were Mm going to practice, what kind of parents they wanted to be. And apparently she was really into this book that was about French parenting. Mm -hmm. She was very inspired by that. And Gus was horrified Yeah, because it, 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 it it was about making sure that you would train your kid sleep train at Mm -hmm. three months. And he was like, this is horrific because you know, you're prioritizing our adult needs and the ethos of that book is selfish which is which is so crazy, right? Because Insane. again, a mu- so much easier for the man to say it because the man very very rarely has to face the consequences no, of any of this. It's, it's, it's just it's laughable that that was his criticism. But again, it's that's exactly it. If if you're not choosing that moment to become a parent, if you're not choosing the moment for you to have a family, and that moment chooses you, um, so to speak, then at the very least. I don't know, define it for yourself, right? I I, I guess that's maybe the moral of the story in many ways. Yeah, define the way you would want to be a parent, define the way you would want your life to be and and surround yourself with those who are similar in thought. Right. Because then I think there was a moment when Susana wanted them to all go vegan Mm -hmm. or something and and Harriet was looking a bit thin and Gust was fine with that because he was, you know, Happy with her, and then the doctor told them they had to change their diet. She start eating again. They start eating. So it, it, it's funny how that happens too. It's like one suggestion is so horrifying, and then the other one is like, "Oh well, we just you know want her to be healthy, you know, vegan, all of us together." <laughs> right, and and that was super frustrating for Frida that Susanna was taking over and sort of becoming the mother figure in her daughter's yeah. life. And, and what I, what I thought was really sad was that nobody ever championed Frida in any capacity. No. I, would, I would even argue, and this is maybe a crazy thing to say, but I would argue that Susanna might have been the only champion that she had to a certain extent. I could see that. Because was, the was. social worker was ho- a horrible person who was against yeah. Frida from day one. Gust was, you know, supportive, um, but really more as the father of Harriet mm-hmm. and not so much as the ex-partner of Frida. And I think Susanna could feel... Because Susanna wanted to have a child, ends up having a child, right? And I think she could feel what that would have meant for her. I would argue that Susanna had the most compassion, even though she she fucked up. 
quite yeah. a bit. That that's a good example of it of of trying to put her faith and her ideas and project them onto a child that isn't hers. But I would argue that that was the closest person that she had. Yeah. Susana was very, very kind to her throughout yeah. this whole time. And even just because she could easily be like, oh, well, this is my husband now. This is mm-hmm. my family now. We're doing things this way. And you adapt to our family. And she was also very kind and just, yeah, whatever you need, Frida. We're here to help was you. Supportive. It was yeah. kind of it was kind of interesting. She yeah. was a really interesting character for that reason because you were supposed to want to hate her. Mm-hmm. I think that was supposed to be her function. Yeah. And I didn't hate her at all. I had no, no issue with her. I had I had almost like compassion for her because I I could only imagine how difficult the situation was for her. Mm-hmm. Suddenly this kid is is essentially yours. Oh yeah. You know? All the time. But other than Susanna having that kind of very strange relationship with Frida, there's another character that is uh, definitely worth talking about, and that's Tucker. Oh, yes. Tucker was <laughs> Tucker is a bizarre character for the same reasons that I think Susanna is, which is that you want, you want to really like him, but you also see him as a distraction. You see him as mm-hmm. something potentially negative in, in Frida's life. And Tucker is one of the fathers at the father reform school. Yeah. At the school for good fathers. <laughs> And they end up meeting. There's there's a there's a moment in the book where both schools kind of come together and they and they have a social and they bring their fake robot children with them <laughs> and they get to know each other. And of course, what it does is it, it's it's a test. Yeah. Right. Because some of these mothers are like they, you know they're meeting these other fathers and like oh and then there's romantic entanglements and they get punished for all of that because of course you're not supposed to be prioritizing anything but your child, especially yourself. Yeah, you're being a narcissist you're for being, even exactly. thinking about anything other than your child. Exactly. So that was an absolute test. But Tucker weirdly is like this, I think, really gentle, wonderful person who ends up at the School for Good Fathers for what I would argue is the dumbest reason <laughs> of all time, right? His kid was playing in a tree, in a tree and yeah. fell and broke his arm. Okay, so every other kid, <laughs> like, it was just so crazy. And I think that that was there as a as a reminder that this is a moment in time in the U.S. that is supposed to be run by very, very, very conservative people, right? Yeah. Because this was a, a pilot program taking place in... In Philadelphia, but they were trying to go nationwide yes. with these schools and with this reform program. So unfortunately, they are really kind of guinea pigs in this huge experiment, and they're using just about any reason to bring people to bring people in and reform mm-hmm. reform them, right? Exactly. In quotes. But Tucker is is an interesting character that I I actually liked and I and I felt for and I yeah. felt and I felt bad for. Yeah, I did too. He he was kind and he was kind of her only only glimmer of happiness and hope there while she was there he was a good friend and and it just made things i think for her feel more normal and more like she could do this just another way for her to pass the time and and kind of like go towards a goal of leaving there um but yeah it was it was just kind of an interesting character and i just you know you feel for her because they are treated so differently at his school and and they start making plans and thinking about the future. She starts thinking hypothetically about the future. Um, and it's just interesting because, you know, you both are in this school for bad parents, essentially. Right. Like, how does that how does that even manifest itself in the real world? How do you guys even get through that? Could you imagine? Oh, Gust, I met this new guy at the school for bad fathers. <laughs> 
It's like falling in love in jail or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's like similar vibes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very it's it's a weird thing, right? Because you see them both as victims, and you yeah. see them both as like wrongfully imprisoned i would argue yeah. imprisoned yeah, because they didn't have a choice if you did not go to this reform school you lost custody immediately yeah. if you went to the school you had a chance of getting your kid back and we know that statistically that that doesn't really become the case no, right, no. for a lot of these people because they fail the courses they run away they run away they let, let, let's talk let's talk actually about this the suicides mm-hmm. right this is this is a book that inevitably has to touch on that because what you have is people who are being accused of horrible, horrible things in this reform school with zero compassion, zero understanding. Inevitably, you're going to have suicides. Yeah. And there is a horrible suicide that we horrible. won't describe. No, no. But there's a horrible suicide that takes place in the book. And and it just, it shows you the, the it, what happens when you're not taking care of your mental health, when they're not helping you take care of your mental health in situations like these. And it was such a horrific moment in the book. And it was really 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 sad and it kind of brought me back to this idea of like self-care and taking care of yourself mm-hmm. that was used very ironically in the book yeah because frida gets criticized for that where one of the teachers tells her like oh you're not looking good you need to start taking care of yourself but then how toxic is that yeah. when what they're telling you is give 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 take it take it take it suffer 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 the only thing that matters is that your kid is okay but then you're gonna look at her and you're gonna tell her that she needs to take better care of okay. herself <laughs> That mixed messaging can actually be really damaging and really toxic and really hard on anybody, but especially on on women. I think we hear it all the time. We're told all the time, you know, self-care is so important. You know, take time for yourself, rest, do all of these things, which I wholeheartedly agree with. But then you're also told at the exact same time that all of those things are selfish, Mm -hmm. that they're a product of of narcissism to a certain extent and that if you're resting and you're taking time for yourself that you're not taking time for presumably other people or other things yeah. that might be more important to society but not necessarily to you mm-hmm. so that idea of self-care and mental health and it was it was used and and discussed in the book i think in, in a in a really difficult way through that suicide and through some of the breakdowns that we see that yeah, these women a lot have. of these women just just are losing it some of them are you know thinking about runaway to go kidnap their kids and they're fine go find their teenagers some teenagers have escaped and they don't know where they are some parents are dealing with caretaker issues in the home not being able to find sufficient care for their children and I think another interesting point in talking about mental health is both Frida and Claire Watkins both had children that were under one when they had their breakdowns. Right. So it's like if these women had postpartum depression or any other symptoms like that, they could have, I think in this instance, you know, maybe just sending them to a, a therapist or a psychiatrist briefly right. is a better option than going to, um, you know, some druggy hippie sabbatical in the desert or a school for good mothers she did though right clairvade watkins she did have postpartum depression yeah she did yeah, for she sure 100 percent. and i would argue to say frida did too yeah like yeah exactly there's well well it's interesting because you know like that whole theory that i have that maybe she never wanted to be a, to be a mother maybe that's actually not the case and maybe it's more that she really was suffering from something like that i don't know like i would have to I would almost have to reread the book with that lens Dive to try and it. figure out what the author was doing. Yeah. 
I only thought that because she was so young. The the child was so young. And I mean, so you pop out this kid that you may have not wanted. Your husband cheats on you with a much younger white Barbie doll woman. Right. Leaves you for her. Your family doesn't live where you are. And they're not that, you know, leave it to beaver kind of support group. And then you're alone with this child figuring out what to do with your life. And you just have a moment and you fucking leave your kid at home. Right. I don't, I mean, like, maybe this is insane, but, like, I didn't think that was that big of a deal. <laughs> like, is that a horrible thing to say? Someone's going to message us and be like, Maritza is a horrible person. Maritza's wilding out. No, I mean, I think you have to think about it all relatively. Like, her leaving her child alone and what was it, like, the little, not the stroller, the bouncy yes, chair it was that, thing. Yeah, it was like that little protective. contraption that where, like, she's, she's like, she could go anywhere. She was just going to sit there and bounce. Not like, yeah. she's going to, like, go burn herself in the oven or... Or, or, or walk out the door. You know what I mean? Like, that. this could have been so much worse. Yeah. No, exactly. It's it's that versus, I think, one of the mothers kept her six children locked in a, in a hole in the ground right. or some shit. Right. Some That's crazy right. thing like that. It, th- those are very different cases of abandonment and Lisa, endangerment. Linda. Yeah, Linda. Name? I think it was Linda. Those, those are on different ends of the spectrum. But look, they still had the same fucking outcome. Right. They both got sent to this school and it's ugh, it's so bad. It's so frustrating because you 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 see some of them as as real victims and then you see some of them as almost like deserving of something bad. Yeah. But but I still don't believe that this could ever be the punishment. You know what I mean? Like it was just some of these women, I think that what they needed was help. Yeah, they just needed support, whether it was someone to watch the kid, um, you know, mental health through therapy, pills even maybe, right. depending on some of them. Um, some of them were just, you know, poor. Some of them were just poor. And that's and that's the thing. And we've, again, we've talked about that a lot, that the United States has has this this thing about it that makes it so that poverty is is essentially is is crit- is criminal mm-hmm. you know we've we've discussed that from many different sort of perspectives but in this case that's absolutely right women who did not have the means to to take care of their children in the way that is ideal according to society are punished for the only reason being that they that they were poor yeah and that was also i think a brilliant addition of 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 the author to inc- to include that because we're talking about economic issues mm-hmm. really and that has to be a central element in the book definitely and when these women are described you know mm-hmm. you know that Meryl was a was a teenage girl right she they, they called her teen mom yeah, at the school exactly. and she was she was very very poor and all she wanted was for her kid to to grow up and 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 become an, a runner or something, something she mentioned. Like that, yeah. So that way she would get a scholarship and then she wouldn't get pregnant and then she could she break the cycle. Life. Yeah, exactly. Because poverty in and of itself is this vicious cycle and I think anybody who knows any any semblance of just anything about what it's <laughs> like to live in America, you would know that it's not about hard work. It's not about you know, tying your bootstraps and getting to work and you're going to make it out of poverty. If you're poor, the chances of you staying poor are so high, so, so, so high that you could lose faith just from the numbers alone. Exactly. I think that was a clever way too of laying um, the income, you know, thread in there, disparity in there. Because I think that also led to 
her being kind of in her own world away from the mothers. First, the race thing. Right. And then I think also the economic status because Frida had access to resources. Frida had a husband who had money that could, you know, hire whoever. And all these women were, you know, struggling, trying to to make it quick to the school so their kid wasn't alone because they're working three jobs kind mm-hmm. of thing. So there was that disparity there with Frida. They're just running around trying to make it work on the little money that they had while while this bitch is here like, I'm going to go get a coffee and right. I'm going to leave the baby. Right. And then <laughs> I'm just going to pick something up really quick at the office, like super quick. And then I'll come right back. Yeah. So I think that was another layer of why they probably were like, this bitch mm-hmm. just strolling in here. Yeah. <laughs> For what reason? Exactly. When you had all the means and you had all the mm-hmm. resources. And, and even then, you know, you can have all the means and you can have all the resources. And we've already discussed that Frida was lonely. Yeah. In need of help. And unable to handle the situation that she was in. So imagine someone who's in that situation emotionally, but also doesn't have any monetary, uh, you know, access to any, any, any sort of help. You know, it's just, it's horribly unfortunate. And I'll say this, there's no happy ending. There's an ending that I think is a little bit unpredictable. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't picture that. And I thought was really clever, but you're not going to read this book because you actually believe that something good mm-hmm. could come of something so bad. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just, That's the other moral of the story. You cannot possibly believe that after everything that these women are put through, that they would actually be able to come out better. All they were was abused yeah. for a the year. The whole time. That's, yeah. it. that's it. I had a friend um, who read the book. Um, she was a mom. On Instagram, she was posting about it, and I'm like, oh, how interesting. I'm curious to see through her lens what what she thought of it. And, and I was asking her, and she told me, you know, it was horrifying to read as a mom. I can't imagine those things ever happening to me and, and being in that position. She's like, but I felt that I owed it to Frida to be her advocate and finish the book and see it through mm-hmm. because – you're just hoping something good happens, but you know that it's never going to come. And you you owe it to the character in the story to, to give her that much. Right. Yeah. And I, and I agree. And I think, again, this is a story that if you are a mother, you're going to see it from a, a certain perspective that, that, that I can't. Mm-hmm. But if you're not a mother, you're going to see it as a critique of society as a whole. And, and, and let me be so bold as, as, as to say that, this is a story about a patriarchal society that that fundamentally hates women. Mm-hmm. And when that's the kind of society that you live in, or there are elements of that in the society that you live in, these things, these stories, they cannot feel that far away. I think it's important to, to, to address that as well. This is dystopian. It's scary. Yeah. The robot kids are hella weird and feel very, very sci-fi. But the premise itself is not a foreign concept. And there are plenty of laws in place right now mm-hmm. that make it so that women struggle that much more. And that brings us, I would say, and this is this is the last topic I want to touch on very briefly, but that brings us to to all of the horrible abortion bans that we're seeing all across the country. Oh, Florida, the Florida latest. right now with 15 weeks. Oklahoma essentially outlawing abortion entirely. Roe is on the verge of complete collapse. You know, we're we're living in times where where women do have a right to be afraid and to be angry. And, you know, sometimes for women, family planning and abortion services, that's the only help that they're ever going to 
they're, they're ever going to get. Mm-hmm. And when we take that away from them, we force women deeper into poverty. We force them into situations that they cannot nor needed to be in. And, 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 and I get really frustrated when people say really stupid things like, oh, but you could just, you know, put your kid up for adoption. Well, let's be very clear here. <laughs> adoption is, is essentially the replacement to parenting, yeah. but it's not the alternative to pregnancy, which is not a health neutral event. No. Women have a right to not want to be pregnant, not just not have a child and then be their parent. So this book, I think, is, is, is also very much reminding us of the moment that we're in. And if we're ever in a post-Roe world, which I do, I hate to say this, but I do believe is going to yeah, happen. I do soon. believe that Roe is going to be overturned. If we're living in that world, then this book will take on its own definition. And if, we, if we're able to save Roe, then it will also remind us of the moments in which we almost saw some of those fundamental rights go away. We need to codify Roe. Yeah. So I just want this book to function for, for women as a whole as a way to remind you and, 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 and everyone around you that it's so important who you vote for, what you support, what legislation you support, because it fundamentally changes lives. Yeah. And they are economic issues, period. Yeah. I'm too angry. Oh, my job. Let's cheers no, to that. No, it's true. Cheers to that. Cheers to voting. <laughs> cheers to knowing that politics affect your every fucking day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. And on that note, now that we just took, I mean, we've been sipping the wine. We've been sipping, yeah. Which yeah. is delicious. It's so I good. would say we dive right the hell in. Yeah. So the wine um, from today is Mas Martinet um, Priorat. It's a Martinet Brut. 2019. So let me tell you a little bit about why I chose this wine. So the book focuses on a mom who could barely keep it together, who is shamed for for wanting to have her own needs and her own wants. And so I wanted to highlight a female winemaker who's a mom and is running successful wineries and balances her needs with her children's needs. And that is Sarah Perez from Mas um, Martinez. So we're headed to Spain with this wine. Um, Priorat is a small wine region in Catalonia known for its intensely flavored red wines. Um, it's an area with a very long history, but Priorat's difficult mountainside location kept the region fairly obscure until a few decades ago. Um, in the 80s, a, a few families went in and started um, farming the land, and now it's one of the most acclaimed wine regions in the world. So there are 12 smaller villages and growing zones that make up the region. And here, uh, red grape varieties are the most popular and account for 93% of the planting. So, and most of these red are Spanish native varieties. So Mm. you get a real taste of the land there. And there are five founding estates of the Priorat region. These are the families I was telling you about in the 1980s. And Mas Martinat was one of the first. Um, So that's where we're kind of taking off with this wine. It was originally owned and run by Josep Luis Perez, but Sarah's father, and she took it over in the mid-1990s. So she is a mother to several kids. I wasn't sure on the count because at first I was reading some articles and then I realized they were a bit dated. Mm -hmm. So she might have popped some more out, but a handful, let's say a handful of children. (laughs) And she still follows her dreams of creating incredible wines. Um, 
I read a couple of anecdotes about her dealing with motherhood and her business. And just a couple of stories that I found interesting is so when she was pregnant with her second child, she was confined to the hospital for a few months before giving birth because whatever, whatever women issues were happening down there. Um, but that didn't stop her from tasting the new harvest. So her mom would come with glasses and bottles of the new wine and her sister was kind of like, holding guard at the door, making sure the doctor wouldn't come in. And she would call her assistant, taste the wine, and she'd be on the phone deciding whether the wine should go um, go ahead with the pressing or not. Like these critical winemaking mm-hmm. um, steps. She's like there on bed rest, on the phone, being like, yes, tasting this wine now, figuring it out. <laughs> and she also brings her children to wine events despite, um, you know, people getting really uppity and turning up their noses at that. Um, you know, people get dramatic when she says that she's going to bring her kids. They imagine like these crying, naggy, pulling children. And they, they even question her. They're like, Oh, are you really working? Are you working now? It's like, right. Yeah. I'm going to fucking work. I'm a winemaker. Of course I'm here, whether I'm with my kids or not. Like, this is my job. I Mm -hmm. need to do my job. So. At the end of it, people like her kids and and they realize that they're not, you know, running amok. But still, it's just the fact that she needs to clarify, yes, I'm still working, even though I'm here pregnant or I'm here with an infant or I'm here with a child. Well, that was the issue with Frida, wasn't it? That she was working from home. She had those privileges because she had her kid. And then she was afraid that if she wasn't meeting deadline or doing what she needed to be doing, those work from home privileges would be rescinded. Yeah. So it's like, it's the same, it's the a tale as old as time, as women having to balance absolutely everything. everything. And this is a great example of that. Yeah, exactly. I have friends who, who they have to go to work, take the kid to daycare or their mom's house or school and this and fix the lunches and, and take care of, you know, make sure the house is clean and all that. And then morning comes looking like a fucking mess trying to get out the door. And the husband's like, you good? Like, okay, I'm going to go to work now. Ready? Oh, where's my coffee? (laughs) Like, (laughs) that's one easy way for me to murder somebody. Seriously, I I, I couldn't. It's like you had one job. Right. And you couldn't even do that. So, yeah, the wine industry is also pale, stale, old male. And that needs to change. And I, I, I appreciate her, you know, making these incredible wines and going to these events and not giving a fuck and being like, yeah, I'm here. Don't ask me. Don't have the audacity to ask me if I'm working or not. I'm working right now. So let's do this. I appreciate her trying to to change that in this world. And then also, you know, going back to patriarchal society and stuff, when she started making wine, no one took her seriously. Of course. Of course. At all. Even with her family's claim to fame and just growing up in the fields and the vineyards, people would just look down at her like, oh, you're just playing now. So right. she's a woman. She has exactly. a smaller brain, of obviously. Course. <laughs> so she can't, she can't, she can't be as smart, obviously. No. So she tried to be one of the boys. Um, she would be loud and curse and do things that were considered manly back then, like drink black coffee. <laughs> and wow, wow how masculine. I don't <laughs> Give me that fucking coffee. <laughs> it's so weird. It's like these old Spanish guys that she was trying to learn from. It's it, it's just so silly. Oh, very very strange it's, definition of what is manly. Right? But okay, let's let's. They specifically said that. I was like, what? <laughs> very bizarre. And she eventually, you know, by assimilating to these men's, you know, description of being a man, I guess, um, she got the street cred and was able to make wines that suited her taste. So back then, she was making big bold 
you know, wines that weren't exactly her style, but she was doing it to fit in with the men. And now eventually she could make wines that fit her style and what she wanted. So, but you know, that's kind of funny that you're saying that because now that I'm drinking the wine, like I would describe it as masculine, right? <laughs> this wine is intense. It's, it's, a, it's delicious. It's, it's bold. It's very bold. Yeah. I would argue. I yeah. mean, not, not women are more bold. We're smarter. We're stronger. We're everything. But, but yeah, I, I, like now that you mentioned that, I'm like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, totally. So this goes to the land and the grapes there. And I mean, uh, you'd appreciate this. In 1999, with a friend, she founded her own separate cellar while continuing to work at her at her father's cellar here in Mas Martina. Um, and she bought land in the sandier uh, neighboring um, neighborhood of um, Montsat and named her very new cellar Venus after the birth of Venus, which she Love saw it. on a tasting trip. Yeah, she was inspired by the beauty and had feelings uh, linked being to a newborn and femininity, which were all things that she had to hide back in the 90s when she was trying to fit in with the men. So it was kind of like her coming out of that bullshit right. that she was dealing with, trying to fit in. And now it's like, this is the real me. Here's my new baby. Right. <laughs> this wine. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love the, the you know, it, it's hard because I think in, in moments like that, we're, we're thinking about the 90s here, right? Where it was important to emulate men in order to, mm -hmm. to get ahead. But what's ironic is that when you're emulating men, you're actually emulating what men emulate because men also act to be those things. Yeah. And that's why pushing for individuality is so important and allowing for people to be exactly who they are is so important because then what you just have is, is, is plain old authenticity. Yeah. Right. So it's just really interesting that she's like trying to act masculine, but, but that in and of itself is a performance. Yeah. Too. <laughs> it's all fake. It's all fake. <laughs> all men pretending. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, so this wine is a second label of the winery. So it's not as expensive, but it's still very great. And the estates where it comes from receive um, southwest wind and a humid sea breeze known for cooling the last hours of the hottest summer afternoons. And that helps obtain a slower and more extended ripening period. So the grapes are able to hang longer and reach their full potential. Um, it's made with 57% Grenache, 2% Syrah. 17% Cariñena. I've never had that grape. 16% um, Merlot and 8% Cabernet Sauvignon. So you're right. These are these are big grapes. Bold. Big, yeah. bold grapes. Yeah. So if, if this isn't crazy bold, I can only imagine what the wine she was originally making were tasting like. <laughs> yeah. And now let's, let's grab our wine. We're going to take a look at it. Um, this wine to me looks kind of, um, ruby with purple. Mm -hmm. Like there's some purple. Definitely. Around the, the edges there. It smells nice. It's, it's, has a strong aroma. Yeah. It's like a lot of red fruit, red berries, but also like floral almost. I get, kind I get spice. a lot of cherry, not cherry, only in, yeah. in, in the, in the, in the scent, but also, I mean, when you taste it, that's for me, that's what I'm getting yeah. the most is, is like just Super ripe cherry. cherry. Yeah. No, it smells really nice. Now let's take a sip. No, oh, it's nice. Very, very bold. Very bold. There's tannins, but they're not like crazy drying. They're, they're pretty, no. they're pretty, um, you know, softer tannins. They're not 
Now this is a a, a stronger wine, mm-hmm. right? This is uh this is pretty boozy. I mean, yeah, it's very boozy. It's a fourteen point five percent. That's intense. It's, yes, but you wouldn't know because it's so balanced. Yeah, yeah, like, I agree. Like you don't get the the piercing alcohol in the back of your throat. That you're just like, <laughs> no, not at all. It's really rich. I mean, what I what I like about it is that it's. It is very bold, but it feels very drinkable. You know, this mm-hmm. isn't something that I feel like I would get tired after a glass. I actually mm-hmm. find it to be very, very drinkable, very, very delicious. I love that bold cherry flavor that comes yeah. through. It's delicious. No, it's so good. The the cherry, there's like a lot of dark fruit in here, but it's very like smooth. Yes. It's not. Sorry, I'm still like... <laughs> yeah, you do your thing. <laughs> yeah, I could taste like the cola, kind of a cola esque, mm-hmm. but it's not very acidic. It's not very acidic at all. I'd say like medium acidity at best. But no, it's delicious. Um, very drinkable, despite the the kind of crazy blend here. It's one, two, three, four, five different grapes are in this blend. Yeah. And Grenache is always a fun one. Sometimes um, some of my wine friends have this Grenache Bosch and we all bring Grenache from different regions and, and they're all vastly different. Yeah. Like, depending on, on where they're from. So it's really interesting to try to try this one. And I grabbed this wine at Vino Nueva. It's a new wine shop right by my house. So it's on Biscayne, the street across from Biscayne and probably like 55th Street, 56th Street. They have a really great small place there with lots of wine from all over and really great quality. Fantastic. Yeah, you could find... Shop local. Yeah, you can find cheap bottles, expensive bottles, but all are good quality. So love shopping local. Can't go wrong. And this one was how much? This one, since it's the second label, it's not as expensive. This one is $38. So um, you really can't find wines in this region for this price point. They're usually much higher. So this is definitely a great buy for Priorat. That's important to note because this is something that you can take to a friend's house and impress them for the low price of $38. Yes, definitely. This is a good, this is very good bottle. So I encourage you all to grab it if, if it tickles your fancy with our, with our descriptors. <laughs> Highly recommended and, and also silly comment, but I love the label. It's such, yeah. a, such a cute, well-designed label. I mean, let's, let's not pretend like we don't sometimes choose books by their cover or wines by their label, right? I mm-hmm. mean, that's just the reality sometimes. And this I this is something I would probably pick up just because it just looks so good. It yeah. just looks cute. It's great typeface, yeah. nice color and design, minimalist, but still has personality. It's fantastic. Totally this did. was a great choice. Cheers. Cheers. Well, thank you all so much, as always, for joining us on, on our conversations and, and sometimes rants. But this was such a great such a great topic to to touch on and i think that we'll i think we're going to expand on this there's no question i think yeah. as we move on to different books this is going to be one of those that we refer back to because mm-hmm. it touches on such important themes themes that we're particularly interested in that we that we're always going to want to continue to yeah. discuss so you know stay tuned uh for our next episode and for now send us your your thoughts your ideas and 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 of course as always join in on the conversation yes make sure to follow us subscribe to our podcast go to our shop get some merch uh, sign up for our newsletter and, and be in contact with us on all things pop pod. And until the next one, cheers. cheers.